One of the most successful films at the 2001 Academy Awards was Aaron Brockovich, which brought the story of the fight against corporate negligence and water contamination in California to a worldwide audience. Julia Roberts picked up the Oscar, but the real star was the environmental activist who campaigned against energy giant Pacific Gas and Electric. I do remember sitting with Ed in his law library. That's Aaron Brockovich, the real Aaron Brockovich. The Ed she's talking about was Ed Masry, her friend, boss, and partner in the landmark lawsuit. We get put in a box. I've always been trying to break out of that box because I'm a dyslexic. And Ed, when we first began, by law, was put in a box. And he says, you know, kid, we're not going to be able to do this because of a statute of limitations. And for me, I, I couldn't accept that. I said, Ed, you've got to be kidding me that you're, that, what, so we're just going to give up that you would even say that to me as I'm sitting here in your law library? Let's look at all the law books in here. How did these laws happen? Because somebody made a challenge. Somebody went out on a limb to fight for a law, to change a law, create a law. You're not going to do that because that's what I thought lawyers do. And, you know, Ed and I had that kind of relationship, and now it was competitive. And he was like, well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I got the chance to talk recently with Aaron. We chatted about what it's like trying to hold major corporations accountable, why seeing is believing, and the Post-it notes that help keep Aaron motivated day in and day out. Welcome to Backstory, Aaron. Hi, Brian. You grew up in Kansas, and I'm curious to know what your relationship to the environment was in Kansas when you were growing up. Well, I'm so glad you brought that conversation up. I was born and raised in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, I'm a mixture of both my mom and my dad. My dad was an engineer, and my mom was a journalist. So I guess my Snoopy behavior comes from my mom's side. But my dad actually was an industry man, um, retired from the United States government, but most of his career ran the pipelines for Texaco. Wow. And he's the very one that taught me at a very young age the value of water and land and our correlation and our health to it and the importance of protecting it. So when I got involved in Hinckley, so much of that developed for me. It was a natural fit. Well, I want you to take us back to the moment where you began to suspect that something was unfolding. Take us back to the moment where you were going through these real estate records and discovered something untoward. You know, it's been what, well, I guess we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of the film Aaron Brockovich, and it's really taken me all that time to kind of look back and put together what I was doing. When I first um, saw the records, I was a single mom. I needed a job. I wanted to do a good job. And when the box came to me and Ed said, you know how to open this file, uh, to be honest with you, I actually didn't, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And I began to look at the documents. Isn't that a funny thing? You actually pick something up and read it. There was bar graphs in there from the lab work. So the lab work of the kids was done on a, on a chart. So you could clearly like see, you know, the white count, the blood count, the T cells, all of that listed off on the left. And then a graph of where it should be. So I could clearly see, wow, wow, these are way off the chart. And as a single mom uh, and adoring my children, I was like, 
I just think that's odd. Uh, if this were me, I'd be asking, why is my child's hemoglobin so high? Or why is my child's white count so low? I mean, I can clearly see coming from a lab that this isn't right. And can you give us a little context about the file in general? As I understand it, it was primarily real estate records. It was, but the medical records were in the real estate file. And why? Because Roberta Walker had been saving them because she didn't trust what was going on. So she was throwing everything. But what was happening was they were trying to settle a real estate transaction deal and sell the house. Right. So all the medical records just happened to be in there. And that's what struck my attention was like, oh, what are these medical files doing in here? And why are these kids have this strange blood work? In a real estate file. Good question. So what did you end up concluding? What did you decide PG&E was up to? Well, I thought it was very strange, so I asked if I could go out to Hinkley and meet Roberta. She's my first contact, um, and she was the mother that was out there that had reached out to the firm that PG&E was trying to buy her property. So when I went in and I was talking to Roberta, you know, she brought out the files, and we talked a lot about, you know— the animals covered in tumors, you know, these are just weird, bizarre stories, and I'm listening with great curiosity. And she brought out, again, her real estate files. She had copies of everything because PG&E wanted to buy her house, and it really started off with they weren't paying the right dollar figure, mm -hmm. and they wanted to buy other homes, so they kind of started having these community affairs that PG&E put on. Why did they say they wanted to buy the houses? They were getting into the real estate business all of a sudden? No, they were bringing in a new road, and they had to buy. It was really kind of just a, a big old lie. Is that what they said? Yeah, uh -huh. that's what they were telling people. Uh -huh. So on one of the reports, there was a Dr. Anderson, I remember his name, had written down the word CR6. I thought that was weird, and Roberta talked to him about it, and he had told her it was hexavalent chromium. Hmm. So there was some records, and I asked Roberta if she had been out to the water board, and she'd said she had, but there wasn't anything. So that was my first introduction to going out to the water board, and it was as I was digging into them. And, and you'll see in the film, I went out there. And to get in, I started to get reports and was reading stuff that was fascinating me. They knew they had a plume. It had gone a good distance, but there was the word, hexavalent chromium. So, again, something that started to resonate with me. I'm like, what are they hiding? And this is a chemical. What is this chemical? And again, my curiosity started asking questions, talking to experts, making phone calls, and learning the danger of it. And then it kind of started to snowball from there, you know, where Berta would tell me about her family's illnesses. She would tell me about the neighbor who had a dairy farm and all the cows were covered in tumors. And I'd literally go over there and see them. You know, Roberta would tell me here was her swimming pool, and the water was green. And every frog that got in there, they were dead. I used to collect them out of her pool. And to be standing there and looking at two-headed frogs, green water, cattle covered with tumors, trees dying, hearing these women's story, 
and and thinking of myself in Kansas, it was like, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore because I don't see this in Kansas. And I, I remember somebody from PG&E standing there with me. And uh, I cannot remember the name. And it wasn't a high official. But they're like, well, you're not a doctor or lawyer. I mean, or scientist. I mean, why would you? This is normal. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you something right now as an outsider. Two-headed frogs and green water is not the standard. It's just not. And everything began to happen from there. Well, you're going up against uh, one of the largest utilities, certainly, in the world, PG&E. How did it feel to be going up against uh, that kind of gargantuan opponent? I don't even know that I made that association. I was very rooted in with the curiosity, uncovering what was going on. Somebody was telling a lie somewhere. People were sick. Animals were dying, and none of it made sense. So I was going to keep going. And I believe, you know, Ed and the lawyers on that side realized who this was uh, and that they were going to legally give them a run for their money. And, you know, I spent a a year out there before anything was even filed, gathering all the information and evidence and meeting people. And we we quickly realized that they had been poisoned. But proving that was going to be, you know, a a legal challenge. One of the first documents that I got into in a paragraph told me the whole story. And, you know, when you get into court, you've got these dose-response ratios. And and it's important that people understand if, if you have a contamination in your water, it didn't just show up. You're looking at a contamination and a lower level of a larger number in time. Right. And so when I was out in Hinkley, we knew the levels were still high. But I was fascinated with one of the first documents I read, and it stated that the report was dated 1992, that Pacific Gas and Electric's monitoring wells in Hinkley were still registering 5 ppm. Now, I'd already learned that 5 ppm was declared hazardous waste. And it went on to say that 90% of the chromate had already been removed via domestic and agricultural use. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) if it's 92 and it's 5 ppm and 90%'s been removed, oh my gosh, what was it in the 80s? What was it in the 70s? As time went on and we finally got in, found those documents, and there was subpoena requests and everything because it just wasn't sitting around. The first indication of the levels hitting that plume was about 1960, and they were over 20 parts per million. Ding, ding, ding. That explains so much. And so you have to be able to prove that um, in the court of law. So for me, really digging for the records became really critical and uh, getting involved with the employees and you know, they had been poisoned too. It took a very long time for them to trust me. And this is something that's important that is oftentimes missing, is establishing that trust. How did you do that? Coming back, coming back, coming mm-hmm. back every single day, taking the phone call, bringing them information, having a conversation. To what extent were they worried in a very understandable way that they would lose their jobs? The employees, mm-hmm. well, it took them a while, but once they realized and they started coming to community meetings, so when they start seeing these documents and the employees, 
the connection they started to make was, is this why my child is sick? So there was two employees, and both have now passed, Lily Melendez and Chuck Ebersol, that really came forward. And one way in how they missed it, the hexavalent chromium that was coming into the facility was named Betts 45. So nobody would make the association that Betts 45 was, in fact, hexavalent chromium. So as they would hear me or they'd be able to see a document, they'd go back and then they started looking up Betts 45 and found out it was hexavalent chromium. Then they'd call and tell me. So Mm. it took a while of just showing up, being there, bringing information. And it was hard for the employees to accept. To have someone that's a stranger come in and say, oh, by the way, this person has been hiding information from you and poisoning you and your children for 10 years, that's kind of really hard to wrap your mind around. (laughs) You don't want to believe that, right? Sure. And neither did they. You've mentioned the film, um, Oscar-winning film. What do you think that film has done to change perceptions of corporate responsibility? What I do believe happened is that the film woke people up. It gave us a platform where they woke up and they could see a human experience that they could relate to. When the film first came out, I was shocked. We, We couldn't get into... Every theater we went to, it was sold out. And so the next day I went, and even in the middle of the day, the theater was packed. And I sat in the back of the room, and no one knew who I was. And I listened, and I watched their reactions. Mm -hmm. But on the way out, I was listening to the comments, and they're like, ooh, I wonder if that's just in Hinkley. I wonder how our water is. Hmm. You know, they were asking questions. And so it was that platform that that I think helped inspire people, empower people. Um, And I really hope that they realized you don't have to fit this like idea or standard of if you don't have this degree as a doctor or lawyer or scientist, therefore you couldn't say anything. I think that was a real shakeup moment to see an everyday person uh, unsuspecting who a lot of times we all feel that way about ourselves could actually rise up and and push back. And I was so intrigued with what the responses were. And it's been over this time, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many more Hinkleys we've been involved in that continue to go on. I, I continue to scratch my head. All the issues we're facing today, it's like, what have we not learned? And I do see a pivotal moment right now where that shift is going to happen, where we are looking at, unless we could talk about glyphosate, you know, roundups, a, a plethora of other chemicals. We could talk about what happened in Flint, Michigan and lead and the outbreak of that across this country. I mean, most people don't know, you know, we've got 200 other sites of lead contamination with levels in some locations higher than Flint. How could that be? I began my work in Hinkley in 1991. That case settled in 1997. I had another case with PG&E, same exact thing, that settled in 2005. And here it is, 2019, and it still goes on everywhere, every day. You've said we're at a turning point, Mm -hmm. yet politically, I think most objective observers would argue that regulation is being hollowed out in the national government. 
Well, and it is. And because it is, guess what? You know, everyone is afraid of disruption. I'm not. Because it gets us up off the couch. It gets us involved. We poke our heads over there and we're like, well, wait a minute. Why are you rolling back those regulations? Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Or I know this much. So the movement is... I don't know if we get comfortable or complacent or we assume that these issues regarding water, lead in water, chromium-6 is just being taken care of. Or we assume that because of the film Aaron Brockovich and there was a big payday that it was uncovered and all is good. Well, that's not true at all. We're still out in Hinkley, California. PG&E lied about it again. The entire town is gone again. The, they bought everything. And so because there's disruption, there's a movement happening. You've mentioned the failure to learn some of the lessons of Hinckley. I mean, since the settlement of the Hinckley case, there have been oil spills, there have been charges that earthquakes related to fracking have spread around the country. There's obviously Flint, Michigan. I know you're not a historian, but help me, who is an historian, Understand why people fail to learn lessons from history. Fear. Fear if they speak up. uh, You know, I think of all the employees, they're going to lose their job. You know, uh, the the word whistleblower has such a bad name, and and it shouldn't be. But we're we're bullied. We're told if you say this, you're going to lose your job. That strikes fear at the heart of everyone. I don't want to lose my job. Oh, my gosh, I want to send my kid to college. How would I pay my mortgage? And it, it's terrifying because, you know, we're working because we we want to have a home. We want to feed our children. We want to send them to college. We, we, we want to pay for our insurance. And so if somebody pushes on you and bullies you, I, I think it's a really big deal. Um, we become fearful, and if we're fearful, we shut up. When I work with communities, and I've seen this often, I ask them, because they're not going to talk about it, because, see, they don't want, we judge. And I remember this feeling as a dyslexic, you know, just because you say something, you're different. You know, my mom always taught me, just because you're different or you say something that isn't necessarily scientifically or what other, you know, astute-wise doesn't mean you're inferior. And I think that we we feel that way. So I ask communities to close their eyes. And I ask them, you know, you've been in this community. We understand we're, we, we are looking at a chemical in your water. And, and we're not going to have the conversation. You don't want to have the conversation because you're fearful that you'll be teased or seen different or the community is going to collapse because the company is going to go away. But I need to know about your health. How many of you have an illness or a disease? And I could have a room of 900 community members. And I tell them, keep your eyes closed, but raise your hand. Mm. And 80 to 90% of the room's hands are up. Mm. And I say, keep your hands up, open your eyes, and take a look around. And that becomes the breakthrough moment. They're like, oh, I'm not alone. I can say something. I'm not going to be told that I'm silly or crazy or this isn't related to this Mm. or that. And that becomes the shift when they realize they're not alone. So I think out of fear of being isolated or name called or judged, labeled, perceived, whatever, um, they, they step away. 
We've spent a good period of time just now talking about destruction, deception, disease. Yet you strike me as an extraordinarily optimistic and even hopeful person. How do you keep feeling hopeful? Well, it's funny. Now you know why nobody invites me to parties. <laughs> you know, people, because see, you ask me a question and I'm going to give you an answer. And people everywhere I go will ask me a question about water and it turns into one of these conversations and they're like, oh my gosh, what a downer. Don't bring her again. Um, it is daunting. I th by nature, I'm optimistic. Um, I, I, I've just learned, uh, again, probably from my upbringing, you know, when if I hear a negative, I find a positive. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Keep on going. And so I, and I use Post-its and I use positive notes and affirmations. And when I go south, I want to go north. And I, I put them on my my car, I just constantly, because I feel the negativity myself, um, and it's daunting, and it's draining, and so if I can shift it, I, I will tell you I felt, um, I don't know, five years ago, that that deep, um, this is overwhelming and daunting and negative, and oh my gosh, I never want to be one to give up, but my first grandchild was born, and it completely just reinvigorated me um, about what I will continue to do and the legacy I'll leave for a future for them. Aaron, what is the best post-it in your car right now? <laughs> it goes, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Um, and that's never to get your dauber down. It comes from my mom and my dad. And so... And would you like to explain to our listening audience what a dauber is? Oh, your, your mood, your, your, your mindset. Dauber. Just don't get your dauber down. That's environmental activist and consumer advocate Aaron Brockovich. So, Brian, one of the things about the Aaron Brockovich interview that just jumped out immediately was this question of fear and fear among people who don't exactly know what their recourse is, whether or not they even have leverage over their employer. And, you know, that question of industrial accidents being one thing that makes it hard for people to raise a stink at the workplace, I think in some ways opens a conversation about workplace safety and security more generally, I mean, there's industrial accidents, but there's also post-industrial accidents and problems in workplaces that I'm sure many workers today feel almost no inclination at all to raise hay about. Yeah, I think they know that they could easily be fired or certainly ostracized for bringing this up. I mean, it should be said that we do have some protections for, quote, whistleblowers that probably didn't exist 50 years ago and certainly didn't exist 100 years ago. Nonetheless, it's human nature to not really trust those mechanisms, and it's definitely human nature mm -hmm. to worry about the woman working next to you and what she's going to do for a job. If the plant closes down and, you know, between the threat of safety issues and 
companies just moving overseas because they can get cheaper labor combined uh, with a collapse of union membership, workers are not in a very strong position these days. Wouldn't you agree? I would. I would agree. I mean, there has been no shortage of important commentary about the demise of labor unions or the weakening of of organized labor and what that has meant for any number of aspects of the middle class or, you know, worker representation and voice in politics or what have you. But I think it's also, you know, worth keeping in mind that there are certain aspects of work that have become safer over time. I mean, you think about industrial work in the 1890s, contrasted with that from the mid-20th century or certainly, you know, the later 20th century, and there's been some marked differences. I mean, child labor, for example, is something that is at least not legal anymore as it was in the 1890s. Or, you know, if you think about the fact that in 1947, for example, some 16,000 workers were killed in industrial accidents and contrast that with a 2017 number that has just over 5,000 right. killed on the job. Now, obviously, 5,000 is a lot of people, but it, you know, to have less than a third of what it was even 70 years ago has to be taken as some form of progress. Yeah, and there's a time element here, and I don't, I don't just mean 2017 versus much earlier period. I'm talking about what is a casualty having to do with work? Uh, Mm -hmm. Today, Mm -hmm. we are much more sophisticated about understanding the long-term implications of work, whether it's black lung disease, uh, whether it's asbestos poisoning, whether it's exposure to radiation on the job. And I'm guessing in those statistics you rattled off, we're not including people who die 20 years later or 30 years later. And the other thing that I would say, too, is that we are in a moment, sadly, where I don't think people have it on their, you know, the front of their mind or their consciousness to even understand themselves as workers, right? I mean, there there were dramatic shifts in the late 20th century where Americans really did begin to see themselves as consumers first, even as investors or entrepreneurs, right? The arrival of the mutual fund in the 1970s versus the workplace pension. So all all of this, I think, has changed the conversation to a degree where where you have something like, say, the Hamlet fire that, you know, Brian Simon talks about in 1991. The conditions leading up to that event are deplorable to a profound degree, and yet there's no public outcry or debate around that. I mean, even today, you know, you have workers— in chicken processing plants who are literally wearing diapers on the assembly line because of the restrictions on bathroom breaks, right? Wow. So the creation of jobs doesn't necessarily ensure the quality of those jobs, right? So this is, I think, another point that we have to think through in terms of how we as a society think about industrial accidents, post-industrial work, the kinds of recourse that people are allowed, and the day-to-day indignities that, as you remark, almost go unnoticed in a general statistical treatment of workplace safety. And what struck me in the piece about the Hamlet fire is what Bryant Simon calls the economy of cheap. Mm -hmm. And part of that political economy is cheap government, if you will, or hollowing out government, the absence of regulation. And by the way, one of the reasons that the state of North Carolina would offer for having a, uh, let's call it a minimal regulatory infrastructure, is that if they overregulate, these companies are just going to go to another state. 
Uh, In the 19th century, this kind of competition between states to attract business was called the race to the bottom. There are a lot of good things about federalism, but one of its weak points, in my opinion, is creating these kinds of competitions between states where how can we bend over backward even more to attract business but not regulate that business? And then, of course, the companies have the option, if they're capitalized enough, to take their business outside of the borders of the U.S. completely. They can go to a Maculadora, which is, you know, one of these kind of, you know, low-budget manufacturing places in Mexico, or then, of course, take it to Southeast Asia. You know, even many of their raw materials are coming from corners of the world that are very poorly regulated and observed. And so there's always, like you say, this kind of race that is not just in state to state, but a race to the bottom that is absolutely international. It's a great point, Nathan. And, you know, a lot of people today are comparing the era we live in to the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century. Most of the people making that comparisons are talking about income inequality. But another element that I think really is similar is corporate entities outgrowing the scope of the government agencies regulating them. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, those agencies were local and sometimes state. And the Gilded Age is when you have the emergence of giant national, sometimes multinational corporations. The solution, we nationalized a lot of that regulation during the progressive era, during the beginning of the 20th century. The modern-day equivalent of nationalizing regulation more than 100 years ago Mm -hmm. would be these kinds of rules and regulations uh, that were built into NAFTA, for instance, Mm -hmm. or built into GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, that aren't just about, well, free trade or prohibiting tariffs. They're also about workplace regulations. They're also about the amount of environmental protection that multinationally corporations need to abide by. 